Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, May 31st, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia, Genesessa Fox, and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Genesessa Fox. Jenna has been writing about theater for more than 10 years with numerous publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, and HowlRound. She's a voting member of the Drama Desk Awards and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So, a full panel. Good to have Jenna back in the uh, yeah. saddle here. I'll good, say. good to be back. Yay. Good to hear all your voices. <laughs> So, uh, Michael, we were going to start off with um, Cheetah Rivera turned a sprightly 28, uh, 28, (laughs) 80 years old. (laughs) She'll always be 28 to me. So Cheetah turned 80 and... uh, Well, well, that was a few years ago. Uh, It was. (laughs) I was going to say that too, frankly. (laughs) Was it? And so this, this streaming concert that was on, that was a few years back? Yeah, actually, uh, I read about that it was going to be streaming. And at first, I thought that I had seen this one live, but I I was confused. I did not see this one live. This was for her 80th birthday, and it was done at the August Wilson Theater. Uh Uh, And it was a benefit for um, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. And it was with a full orchestra and uh dancing boys for a couple of the numbers plus special guests tommy tune and ben vereen and it was uh directed and choreographed by graziella graziella daniel and it really was great i you know i've seen been lucky enough to see cheetah many times recently in various venues uh, several times at uh feinstein's 54 below with the you know, a retrospective of her career that she does. That's always basically the same, but it does change a little bit according to the venue and the, the, the amount of time that she has. Um, So this really was a very, very, very special presentation of that. And I am glad I caught up with it um, on video, even if I couldn't be there in person and uh, I certainly donated towards Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS uh, for allowing me to do that. And uh, it's one of the many places that obviously needs our needs our help at this time for those who can give it. Um, so I, it, it was just amazing. And just to see her recreating 
numbers from her her famous famous roles uh including and she even uh made her first entrance through a trap door uh, uh-huh. <laughs> which uh of course immediately brought me back to the original chicago and and that was uh i was kind of i kind of lost it from there and then uh you know i was in the palm of her hand for the rest of the show as i as i always am it also was um <laughs> I love that there's a bit she does in her shows where uh, several years ago it, it happened that um, I think at one point, three r- revivals of her three most famous shows were on Broadway at the same time. And she said she was walking down the street one day and she saw a poster for uh, Chicago and she said, oh, oh, that's that's really that's really sweet, you know. And then she um, turned the corner and she saw an ad for uh, Bye Bye Birdie because uh, that's <laughs> when that short live revival mm. was playing. And she's like, oh, oh, they brought back Birdie. How wonderful. And, oh, how wonderful. wow. And then, um, and then she uh, turned uh, another corner and a bus came by with a big ad and it said West Side Story. <laughs> and she said to herself, do I have to be somewhere at eight o'clock tonight? <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And I just think I don't know whether she wrote that joke herself or someone wrote it for her. I think it's so sweet and, and so incredible, you know, that somebody um, who was part of three legendary productions like that uh, plus more uh, is still with us and still doing it. And, oh, and by the way, here's a little parenthetical thing. I was, I have been rereading Not Since Carrie, Ken Ken Mendelbaum's book on uh, 40 years of Broadway musical flops. Um, I've been trying to read new things during the the pandemic and the quarantine, but also I'm going back to some, uh, you know, some favorites just to, uh, just to reread and and um, and re- remember, uh, you know, a lot of these things I've read so long ago that it's almost as if I'm reading them again. And this is one of them. And I was just struck by something he wrote that is, uh, you know, a statement he wrote that probably he he didn't give a second thought. Uh, to it ever not being true, and it was completely true at the time he wrote it, and and now it isn't. Um, and the statement is: the musicals of John Kander and Fred Ebb range from major hits, Cabaret, to modest successes, Chicago, <laughs> <laughs> to mild failures, Zorba, the Happy Time Woman of the Year, to outright flops. Uh, Flora the Red Menace was one of the latter. And, uh, you know, I mean, since this was a book about flops, uh, he uh, Penn probably thought that most of uh, it would not become dated uh, in any way because everything is, you know, I mean, things were flops and usually they remained flops. Sure. But Chicago, I guess, is is the major exception in musical theater history. And um, then some. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I don't think anyone could ever have predicted that. Uh, but not only the uh, the length of the run uh, of this current revival, which was prompted by the Encores presentation, but then also that that led to a film version, mm-hmm. which um, uh, did win the Oscar for Best Picture, did it not? Yes. And I, you know, I, I meant to look it up. Uh, maybe Peter can tell it us off the top of his head. Very, very, very few uh, film adaptations of Broadway 
plays or musicals have won Best Picture. So it's um, it's in an extremely select company, if only in that sense, and 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 would be have to be judged as uh, therefore to judge Chicago as one of the top top uh, most successful and well known. Uh, properties in all of theater history. So I think that's just pretty extraordinary. So I was extremely wrong here. It was 2013. She's 87 years old now. Ah, yeah. <laughs> wow. I saw her not that long ago. Um, she was at um, a presentation at uh, the Green Room and, um, you know, still full of beans when she's out in public. Um, and I think it's really quite great that uh, my famous story, which I imagine I've told sometime during the 350 odd shows that I've done, um, goes back to 1964 when uh, I was living in Boston, the triad of Bajour. B-H-A-O-U-R. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it means swindle. Um, and Cheetah Rivera was the leading lady in the top build. Um, she played a gypsy. Uh, she has some very good material in the show. The lyrics are especially good in visual, but that's another story. Anyway, I, um, I bought a front row orchestra seat. Um, and, um, yep, I spent my six fifty. And that's six dollars and fifty cents, not six hundred fifty dollars <laughs> as it would be um, in, earlier this year. And um, <clears throat> at the end of the show, there I am applauding, and she looks down, and she sees m- me, and she winks at me, and I am in heaven. I mean, here is the original <laughs> from West Side Story. Here is the original Rosie from Bye Bye Birdie, which was the first road show I ever saw in Boston. By the way, she was gone by that point, but uh, anyway. So, I mean, I was, I was in heaven. 19 years later, I take my little boy to see Merlin, in which she played the queen, and we're third row center, and at the end, he turns to me and says, Daddy, the queen winked at me. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Oh, that is so sweet. That's great. Love it. So, uh, another, um, another wonderful uh benefit concert that was presented online for us to for those of us who were not there to be able to see it michael do you know if it's still online or was it just a one uh, one time only thing you know i i'm sorry i didn't check that either i think they're able to leave uh, them up uh, i think it's yeah i think it's still online yeah because you know they, they want to obviously uh people to donate as as much mm-hmm. as they can and i yeah. and i urge everyone to do so i, I know i mean obviously um it's hard, uh, harder for some people than others. But uh, but the great thing is that even a tiny amount from each person would would really help. Richard Ridge uh, in the video uh, interviews Cheetah mm. uh, remotely. I mean that was done just recently. So it, in addition to seeing the performance, you also get to hear her talk about her career, her life in a one on one interview, and that's a wonderful icing on the cake. Yes, and she kept coming back during it uh, to uh, again uh, keep urging people to to donate. Um, they they re- really was well done as far as the editing Richie and Cheetah into the uh, you know their little bits, their yes. current bits into into the this wonderful uh, recording of the actual performance at the August Wilson Theater. 
Yes, it was it was great to see, and it was wonderful to. Uh, I'm grateful to Richard Ridge for uh, for doing that interview. I don't know if it was live or if it was uh, pre-recorded. I get the feeling pre-recorded. I think so, but very recently. Yeah, very but very recent. recent. Yeah, and it's it's like I said, it's icing on the cake. Hearing her talk about her career, and then getting to see the song that she was just talking about, or you know, see the song and then hear her talk about it. Uh, that was that was really lovely. It's such a great concert. I mean, you mentioned her rising up through the uh, through the <laughs> stage. Uh, you know, the camera is far enough back in the crowd that you can see the audience leap to their feet as soon as <laughs> she emerges. And I mean, how thrilling is that? How it was just that was so lovely. Yeah. And the crowd's enthusiasm. I'm I'm I so regret not being there. I heard from people who were. But uh, cheers to the uh, to the cinematographer for capturing the audience vibe in addition to everything else. Yes. <laughs> so, um, other news this week. Uh, we heard the news this week on Wednesday that uh, Larry Kramer had passed away, and it was um, it, it's such a a deep impact upon. New York and the nation and the world and Broadway all at the same time uh, in the New York Times obituary. Um, they wrote this about him. They said an author, an essayist, and a playwright notably hailed for his autobiographical 1985 play, The Normal Heart. Mr. Kramer had feet in, excuse me, Mr. Kramer had feet in both the worlds of letters and in the public sphere. In 1981, he was a founder of the Gay Man's Health Crisis, a First service organization for mm-hmm. HIV positive people through his fellow directors mm-hmm. effectively kicked him out a year later for his aggressive approach. He returned the compliment by calling them a sad organization of sissies, <laughs> which is so Larry Kramer. <laughs> so, uh, Janet, do you have any thoughts about Larry? Yeah, uh, to my to my regrets, I have only actually ever seen The Normal Heart. Uh, I never got to see the sequel, The Destiny of Me, or Just Say No. So uh, as a playwright, I'm afraid I really only am familiar with one of his plays, which doesn't seem quite fair. So I need to read up on the others. Uh, I also never got to meet Larry Kramer, but I did see him uh, quite a few times when the public revived The Normal Heart in 2004 he would stand outside and hand out sheets of paper to the audience members as they left the theater, uh, frequently in tears. The paper detailed who the characters in the play were based on and what happened to them. And as I recall, it called for further action and justice in a very Larry Kramer kind of way. Um, and I wish, I really wish I had taken the time then to talk with him, although he always looked very busy and focused. And I got the impression he wouldn't have appreciated being interrupted. Uh, maybe <laughs> I'm wrong. Um, in any case, uh, that production was just so gut wrenching. I could barely breathe, much less talk. Um, I mean, the, the 2011 revival on Broadway was wonderful and very powerful, but the final scene at the public still sends shivers up my spine. Uh, David S. Bjornsson, and I'm positive I'm mispronouncing the name, very sorry. Uh, his direction was just so intense and so powerful. Very few moments in the theater since have, have matched it. And it, it seems incredibly ironic 
that Kramer would die just as mm. another virus is killing hundreds mm. of thousands of Americans because of governmental negligence and as people are protesting injustice in the streets and immediately being told, oh, don't protest so loudly. I mean, the timing is just mind-blowing. Mm. And, and as I'm reading about the protests in the streets, uh, protesting the murder of George Floyd, I remember a sign that I saw at the public when the Normal Heart was revived there in in 04. Uh, and I wish I'd gotten a photo of it back then, although smartphones weren't really a thing. Uh, so getting quick pictures was kind of hard. Uh, but the, if, as I recall, the sign said that in the 1930s and 40s, the Jewish community in the U.S. Uh, disagreed on how to get the American government to pay attention to the Holocaust in Europe. Uh, some people wanted to hold big protests and rallies. And other people wanted to write polite letters encouraging the government leaders, hey, pay mm. attention, look at this genocide going on. And so the more politic, polite side won out. And the last line of the sign at the public said something to the effect of the Jewish leaders were still writing their polite letters when Germany surrendered in 1945. <laughs> and that line has just been, since all of this started, that line has been in, in my mind mm. that... You can still be writing your polite letters, even as the war comes to its bloody end. Uh, so I, I hope in in Larry Kramer's memory, people keep fighting uh, all these different fights that we need to fight. Um, in his memory, in his name, uh, it matters. His work matters, and I'm very grateful he lived, and I'm very grateful he wrote. Peter, what have you got to say about Larry? Well, uh, given that Jenna brought up the fact that he was handing out leaflets, that's what impressed me so much. Um, I would, um, when I came out of the normal heart, there he was passing out leaflets. Uh, I'm talking about the recent Broadway production. Yeah, he and, was there too. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, how many playwrights stand outside so that they can say, I wrote this. Uh, didn't you love it? Wasn't it great? And there was none of that. You would really think no. that he was a guy who was hired at minimum wage to pass out leaflets. And that's what was so mm -hmm. amazing about it, that he did not make himself known. And, you know, during that period of time, of course, when all the sh um, shows are opening and we're all going to review them, I would get out of other shows on the street and walk up the street. And there he was um, every night doing it. So I thought that was amazingly impressive. I, I understand. Well, of course, I mean, there's no denying, um, considering all the facts we've heard and um, that he was a cantankerous guy and uh, certainly spoke his mind. But I saw another side of him every time that uh, I was at a party. I, I, I remember once at Sardi's, I was sitting at the same table he was and all that. So um, he could really be quite charming as well. I mean, when he didn't feel the need to be confrontational, and Lord knows often he did, and for good reason, as Jenna points out, uh, the fact remains is that it wasn't that he was just the type of guy who was always um, upset about this, that, and the other thing. Um, he could be a regular guy too. And I saw that many times in, in various um, parties and gatherings and what have you and awards ceremonies for that matter. So under those circumstances, if I had to be a character witness for um, Larry Kramer, I would be able to say very nice things about him, but nothing impresses me as much as that standing outside and being anonymous in doing yes. that. Um, in terms of, this is a very trivial thing compared to what we're talking about with the novel heart. But in the other play, The Destiny of Me, um, this is about his growing up, and um, he has all these window cards of, um, I, I guess it was movies rather than Broadway shows. I don't remember what they were, but I remember his father got so upset at who he was 
uh, that he actually tore up the window cards. And you can imagine, mm. you know, I mean, um, how devastating that was to me, um, who had plenty of window <laughs> cards in my bedroom when I was growing up. And while my father never understood where I was coming from in being interested in this strange thing called legitimate theater, uh, he never tore them up. And so um, I had a, an appreciation for my father that I hadn't had before, uh, given the fact that he almost tipped over my record play once after hearing Carol Channing sing, March, 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 one time too many. <laughs> my mother had to stop him, you know. No, 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 don't do that. So, um, so really, uh, it was a very powerful image to me, and I'm sure to many others. Hmm. Michael, how about you? Well, I... Uh Apropos to, to uh, what Peter just said, I, I met Mr. Kramer a couple of times. Uh, the last time was only about two years ago at a reading, um, a benefit reading, and he was in quite poor physical health at that point, and he was in a wheelchair. Um, and I remember I happened to be leaving the place at the same time he was, and it was in, uh, somewhere that went in an upper floor, and we were uh, all walking towards the elevator, and I got to say um, hi to him and say, you know, how much he meant to me and how great it was to see him, and he smiled at me, and that was great. But uh, also, the previous time I had really, the only time I'd really met him was when I was working briefly at the theater circle uh, theater memorabilia shop on 44th street. And he came in one day and it was pretty much like Peter said, there was that other side of him that was just a, you know, a theater maven, uh, a, a, a wonderful theater memorabilia maven and someone who loved talking about shows and gossiping about performers and saying what shows they loved and what shows they hated. And we just had a, uh, you know, a wonderful little conversation about that. No, I don't think there was even a mention <laughs> during that little conversation of um, the norm, the normal heart or his other work. It was really about just what was on Broadway at the time. And uh, that's wonderful that he had that. I did see um, the destiny of me. Did, did you Peter? Yeah. 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 And it was, I was um, looking it up to refresh my memory. It was nine, 1992 at the Lucille Lortel and uh, it focuses, well, uh, it focuses on, on Ned Weeks, a character introduced in The Normal Heart as he checks into the National Institutes of Health to undergo an experimental treatment for AIDS. Much of his story is told in flashback, as Ned recalls growing up as Alexander in a Jewish household, where as a hardcore theater aficionado, he uh, imitates Cornelia Otis Skinner and Mary Martin and adorns his bedroom with Broadway posters. He constantly is beaten by his father, Richard, a government employee who never fulfilled the promise of his Yale education for being, quote, different and a sissy, while his sympathetic but complacent mother, Rena, fails to intervene. Meanwhile, both parents dote on his brother, Benjamin, who grows up to become a successful attorney with a dazzling career. Um, the play uh, did not go over that well. But uh, I was reading this Frank Rich review. Uh, he said, no one can accuse Mr. Kramer of being a boy who cried wolf. 
history may judge this impossible, reflexively contentious man a patriot. But what makes the destiny of me so fascinating and at times overwhelmingly powerful is not so much its expected single-mindedness about AIDS as its unexpectedly relentless pursuit of the crusader at center stage. Mr. Kramer cannot solve the medical mystery of the virus or the psychological mystery of the world's tardy response to the peril. What he can try to crack is his own mystery. Why was he of all people destined to scream bloody murder with the aim of altering the destiny of the human race? The writing in The Destiny of Me can fall short of Mr. Kramer's ambitions, but it is never less than scathing, scaldingly honest. Uh, so, uh, you know, it definitely was appreciated, even if it wasn't a big success. And, and um, I will uh, never forget the cast, which was really quite extraordinary because Jonathan Hadari played Ned uh, in the present day, the then present day, uh, and John Cameron Mitchell um, was Ned was Ned or Alexander in the in the flashbacks? Plus, you had Piper Laurie as the mother, and Peter Frechette as the father. So it was really quite something, and I am glad that I saw it, uh, even though it wasn't around very long. So our friend Adam Feldman, uh, who is uh, a writer over Time Out New York, um, wrote a few words about. Uh, Larry, that I, I thought we should share here. He said, uh, rest in peace, Larry Kramer, 84. Writer, ranter, difficult person, world changer. And then he Adam talked about his 2011 revival of The Normal Heart and how much he loved it. And then he also talked about that he interviewed Larry twice uh, and once was uh, very pleasant and once was extremely unpleasant mm-hmm. <laughs> and, which I really felt summed up um, a, a lot of people's experiences with Larry I mean I can't imagine the world without Larry Kramer somebody who really really changed everything globally I mean made the Reagan administration pay attention to the AIDS crisis and acknowledge that it existed and take effective action and and as michael brought up you know was it michael or jenna brought up that it's ironic that he passed away during Mm. this administration in this pandemic uh what a world that uh that we were able to exist in at the same time as larry kramer i think i read somewhere and i can't find it now that he um at the time of his death he was working on some kind of a either a play or a some kind of a piece uh about uh the fact that now this is the basically that this is the second plague uh that gay yeah. men have mm-hmm. you know and just everyone else have been through in their in their lifetime and here's um Oh, here's an interesting thing. This is from Wikipedia. It says, um, because of the success of the Normal Heart film adaptation in 2014, that was the the TV version. Yeah, Yeah, uh, the Ryan... Oh, it's not TV. It's HBO. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jenna. <laughs> hey, Jenna, they're not paying us <laughs> yet. Oh, never mind. Well, I mean, uh, she she, uh, she she made a little witticism there, but there is, of course, such a such a fine line now that I don't even. Yeah, want that's to, true. 
<laughs> right. Uh, so that was, thank you for saying that. Anyway, um, it says because of the success of that, uh, which of course that, that, that's a whole nother saga because for years, uh, uh, Kramer hoped that there would be a, a theatrical film version of the normal heart. And at one point, Barbara Streisand had the rights and was going to make it. She went so far as to have, does anyone remember this? Um, they had a reading uh, oh, yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, of, I guess they read the play because the, there wasn't a film script yet. Uh, and it was done, I, I believe at the criterion center and I remember that Eric Bogosian was Ned Weeks, um, and I was there. Uh, but then that that never wow. happened, and uh, Kramer was very vocal about the fact that he didn't think that Streisand was trying hard enough, and et cetera, et cetera. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, years later, Ryan Murphy did it and did, I, I would say, overall a really wonderful job with it. Uh, but anyway, it says that because of the success of that that film uh kramer has begun writing the film adaptation of the destiny of me for hbo mm. which will port this is written in the present tense which will portray ned weeks from the time of the normal heart to present day ryan murphy who also directed the normal heart is set to direct the sequel while mark ruffalo julia roberts and jim parsons may reprise their roles from the first film so who knows if conceivably that might still go forward, wouldn't that be something? Somebody sure needs would. to write the, uh, um, what was the, uh, the Hillary Clinton play last year? Uh, Soft no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, Something um, slash Clinton. Uh, Hillary, oh, Hillary, and, Hillary and right. Clinton. Hillary and Clinton. I, I want them to uh, write a similar play for Barbara Streisand and Larry Kramer meeting in a mm, hotel room. Mm, <laughs> mm. Discussing topics. Great idea. Ooh, that. Sorry, I, I'll be right back. I've got to write this in the next 10 minutes. Excellent. So, yeah, Godspeed, Larry Kramer. Yeah. Um, let's move forward and start our trivia section. So, Peter, why don't you give us an answer for last week's trivia? Well, you may recall that I apologized 804 mm -hmm. times sure. for this question because um, I thought it was really impossible. And uh, the question was, what do Barbara Streisand, Maria Karnilova, and Peter Townsend have in common? And um, only one person tried. Need I add that that was Tony Janicki, who <laughs> seems to um, <laughs> live for these questions. And I'll tell you, boy, he made so many game tries at this. Uh, for example, <laughs> the three have all been involved with uh, a musical in which a character is called Gypsy because Maria Carnilova played Tessie Toro and Barbara Streisand has been threatening to do um, Gypsy um, for a long time. And um, Pete Townsend wrote the lyrics and, uh, and co-wrote the book for The Who's Tommy, which there's a prostitute called The Gypsy. Yeah, th that's good. That's good. But notice I didn't say Pete Townsend. I said mm. Peter Townsend. And that's somebody else entirely. <laughs> so, um, but before I... Um, Reveal that to Tony, um, or at least no, he asked about it because he knew that there was another Peter Townsend, but he took another stab at it, saying that each of them has been connected to an individual named Tessie because Carnilova played Tessie Tora, Streisand played Yetta Tessie Marmelstein, and I can get it for you wholesale. That's T E S S Y 
E. And Townsend worked with Tessie O'Shea on song. I'm telling you, this guy really knows so much. Um, <laughs> then he said all were connected to a, an award that resulted in a tie because Streisand won the Oscar with Catherine Hepburn and Townsend won the 93 score, uh, best score Tony with Candor and Ebb. Whoever thought we'd see those three people on the same stage getting the same <laughs> award. And uh, Gypsy was uh, nominated in the year The Sound of Music and Fiorello, tied for Best Musical Tony. So I'm telling you, but my favorite, my favorite was um, that all three par- participated in stories of military men returning to civilian life after World War II. Because in the way we were, Streisand romances a naval officer returning to the States in Call Me Mr., that's a 1940s review. Maria Carnillo danced in a, uh, a dance involving a captain, lieutenant, corporal, sergeant, and various GIs who are back from the war. And Peter Townsend, now he's talking about the guy that I had in mind, was his own story as a famed RAF squadron leader who downed nine enemy aircraft, twice survived his own plane being shot down, and following war's end, happily served as an aide to the king, attendant to the queen, and romantic partner to Princess Margaret. Who knew? Mm. Well, what I was getting at, and again, it's an impossible question. Um, all of them were at one time married to people who were in the original cast of Irma LaDuce. See, I'm ashamed. Um, <laughs> Streisand was married to Elliot Gould, who was in the show. Carnilova to George S. Irving, who was in the show. And Elizabeth Seale was married to that Peter Townsend. So uh, not the guy from The Who, mind you, you know, someone else. Can I help it if they have the same name? So I'm so, so um, ashamed that I gave such a difficult question and drove Tony Janicki qua- crazy that I'm going to give an easier question this week. In what year does the Tony-winning musical... 1776 take place. (laughs) Too easy? Too easy? All right, let's try this. A musical by someone famous, but a show that closed out of town, also had a title that precisely told you when it took place. What is it? See, I almost had my first trivia answer question correct. (laughs) (laughs) Your hopes have been dashed. I I, I was going to ask one of those Groucho Marx questions that he used to give when people didn't do well on his show, like what color is an orange and (laughs) um, how long do you boil a three-minute egg? And uh, so, but anyway, (laughs) this this is the same type of thing in a way. But it is about a musical that closed out of town and was written by someone famous. Okay, let's find out. You know, Peter, parenthetically, uh, if I understood what you said correctly, uh, Pete Townsend of The Who, um, that other thing applies to him as well, because uh, the, the major plot point of Tommy uh, or a major plot point of it is that, uh, well, depending on the version of the story, Tommy's father or. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right. to- yeah. To- yes. Tommy's That's father right. um, is believed missing in action. That's right. Good point. Uh, and then, and then, uh, and either in World War One or World War Two, depending on, on which the, version of yeah. the story. Yeah, <laughs> and then, and then he turns up. So that would have worked for that one too. Uh, yeah, I wonder good if point. Tony even realized that. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> Okay, so if you have an answer to Peter's uh, question Easy that he, question. he considers easier than uh, the previous one, email us at trivia at com. We'll let you know that if you are on the right track. So I, I feel as though that we're in 1968. Um, 
uh, we have if only <laughs> rioting in the streets, and uh, mm, we have yeah. the, the world the world uh, watching astronauts take off and astronauts in space right now. Uh, it, it's really an amazing, an amazing time. The way that history repeats itself. So, Michael, you got a copy of the. 1936 movie of Showboat, but you got it on Blu-ray, which is confusing to me because I, I'm not sure how Blu-ray helps the technology of 1936, but maybe you could tell us about that and give us a review of this uh, fine um, musical. Oh, well, to answer the technical thing first, uh, yeah, Blu-ray, uh, Showboat, this, the film in question was made in 1936, and it was made on 35-millimeter film. And uh, Blu-ray, uh, the increased resolution over mm -hmm. uh, DVD, etc., cetera, uh, does permit uh, far clearer transfer uh, oh, with okay. which, with much more information. So yes, we haven't reached the the threshold yet where um, where it's it's a, a point of diminishing returns. So I would yeah, and and that and this movie uh, it's a, such a long story, but um, it was almost suppressed. Uh, for, well, it was suppressed for years because uh, when MGM uh, bought mm. rights. To, after after the film was originally released in, in 36 by Universal, I believe, uh, MGM then bought rights uh, for a remake, and they uh, made sure of it that the original musical film was kind of suppressed because they, they didn't want to... Uh, you know they didn't want to uh, dilute their own market, and and uh, they wound up making the remake in '51, uh, which I like that movie. A lot of people really hate it. I, I think it's got a lot going for it, but regardless, uh, I don't think they should have suppressed the original. And um, there's uh, uh, there's featurettes on on this new edition from the Criterion Collection that's that talk about the history, all the history of the whole thing, and. Um, they say it wasn't until 1975, for some reason, I don't know why that year, uh, they were able to uh, begin showing the, the 36 version again. And Irene Dunn was, was still alive at that point. Uh, and she attended the screening, I, I believe it was in, L, in L.A. somewhere. And people just started to rediscover this, this 36 film, which is extraordinary because mm. uh, it has all of the leads basically either played the roles uh either either created the roles on broadway or uh, succeeded on broadway or or played them on tour and that includes irene dunn and alan jones in the lead in the leads um charles winninger was the original captain andy on broadway um and uh Helen Morgan was, of course, the original Julie on Broadway. And then um, Paul Robeson did not get to create the role on Broadway because of uh, other commitments, even though it was written for him, the role of Joe, which we discussed last week because of his iconic singing of mm -hmm. Old Man River. Uh, but he uh, did create it in London and then was tapped for the film version, which... Uh, was so so well directed by James Whale, uh, who seemed to many people a a, a, 
just a left field choice because he was most famous as a horror director uh, for Frankenstein and then several films after that. Uh, but he just wound up doing an extraordinary job of filming Showboat. And uh, I, I mean, it's very, very, very dated in some respects. And there are um, some major cuts because Showboat is quite chock full of uh, plot and music and something had to go. But I urge everyone to see it and you will never see it look uh, or, or hear it sound better than in this edition. I, I, I'm I'm just thrilled. I, I was wondering, uh, you know, during all those years when it was suppressed, I, I wasn't sure if, uh, you know, if it was being taken care of. And the prints I had seen until now were all kind of questionable but this looks um completely restored and pristine and i would say hardly any scratches or or any any uh anything that really uh would would would, would indicate how how old how very very old it is oh and just to end uh, another uh th- this this set would be worth the purchase uh aside from the film itself they have um excerpts from uh there had been a previous attempt to film showboat in 1929 and uh initially it was going to be a silent film but then the then the the musical opened on broadway and became such a phenomenon that they realized well we have to put um some songs in but it was so late in the game that rather than try to uh film songs and put them into the into the narrative what they did was uh uh, a prologue of several songs filmed uh, on a soundstage, again, with, with some members of the original cast. So you have Tess Gardella, um, who was a white woman who used to perform in blackface, an Italian-American white woman who used to perform in blackface uh, frequently as the character Aunt Jemima. And she does two numbers. Um, and then you have Jules Bledsoe, who who did create the role of Joe on Broadway, singing Old Man River with an ensemble. And you have Helen Morgan singing Bill. Uh, I think she also filmed Can't Help Loving That Man, but, but that's not on this set for some reason. Uh, but anyway, 1929. Um, Two years after the show opened, you get to see uh, and hear these people from the original cast performing the numbers with uh, presumably the original Broadway staging and in a, in, on a soundstage with, um, with uh, an orchestra being conducted, I think, by the original uh, conductor of the orchestra and with the original orchestrations. So it's just this incredible, incredible time capsule uh, as is the 36 film, because there are so many people who were involved with the show on Broadway and elsewhere. Um, so I am so glad this came out. It was, it's just, just released. And, um, it's, I guess, the one thing I bought from Amazon during the quarantine because I said, well, this, this I do still have to get, uh, cause this is something really special. Um, since we're mentioning uh, Tess Gardella and uh, Blackface, a lot of people have a lot of issues with the song in the 36th version, which is Ah Still Suits Me. Mm. And that actually is A-H, Ah Still Suits Me. Right. And um, they do feel that it's un- unfair to African-Americans and um, making 
um, Joe, it's between Joe and his wife mm-hmm. and Queenie, and um, it, it's uh, how she accuses him of being uh, shiftless. And he is so unfazed by it. It's just amazing to watch a husband being uh, heckled by his wife and not caring for a tenth of a second uh, because he is very happy with who he is. And um, he he just deals with it in such a humorous fashion as opposed to defending mm-hmm. himself. He doesn't feel he has the need to defend himself. And at the end, um, maybe a little too conveniently, I'll grant you, um, she does seem to not seem. She uh, admits that she's very much in love with him no matter what. And that may be a little simplistic, but um, but still the lyrics are excellent. And it was a song specifically written for that 36 version. It's the only one that appears in. And, you know, when John McGlynn did his magnificent um, three-disc uh, recording of Showboat, I'm sorry to say the actor playing it does seem apologetic in one point um, where he um, seems to be defending himself. And that's not what the... Um, song is about it all so if you really want to hear it the way it should be get that 1936 film yeah uh, michael i'm I'm sorry to say that i'm in the camp too that thinks the 51 is um far inferior to this one and um uh, it's very hard for me to watch it even though the color is glorious and uh everything that goes with that but showboat what a masterpiece of its own i mean to think this was done in 1927 i mean one of the cleverest things that has ever happened in musical theater occurs when indeed uh, we do see Julie um, singing Can't Help Loving That Man. And uh, Queenie says, but that's a colored folk Mm. song. And Mm. that's where we get the first indication that she is not totally white. And it's such a clever way of putting that notion into our heads. So um, that was an amazing, amazing thing. And even virtually a hundred years later and michael you know i don't know when the 29 was released but uh i mean obviously uh, it was 29 um this seems like my trivia question <laughs> but, that. <laughs> but um my point is i don't know if it was in january i don't know if it was in december but when you think of it the original showboat opened in december of 27 so it really was a fast turnaround it it probably was less than two years yeah no so d- does uh Hammerstein and Kern have a history of putting social issues into their shows. Yeah, this seems to be a one-off. Um, yeah. I think. I, I frankly, I don't know enough um, about that period to really say for sure. But um, but this seems to be a one-off. And you know, so interesting that everybody credits Oklahoma for things that Oklahoma deserves credit for. But it's so interesting that it was really you know fifteen years or so earlier that that indeed um, the musical theater took that profound leap. And it's so fascinating too, that it was Florian Ziegfeld who produced it, given the fact that he was known for mm. mindless reviews, you know, um, shows that appeal to the tired businessman because you saw uh, women virtually nude up there. Um, and d- for him to do this was really quite a thing. Ethan Morden has a marvelous book about Ziegfeld and uh, there's a lot in there. And I recommend this book. I've recommend every Ethan Morden book tremendously. Uh, but anyway, this is another one that he did simply on Ziegfeld. And um, boy, is it worth reading. Well, I'll tell you, if you watch this 36 film now, uh, those scenes dealing with Julie um, and her lover being forced to leave 
uh, the showboat because it's discovered that she's uh, mixed race and the the way the whole way that the couple deal with that and uh, but just uh, to see the heartbreak uh, in everyone's eyes as they're forced off of the boat and uh, you can see uh, uh, Paul Robeson uh, as Joe standing like at a distance because he has to keep, you know he has to keep his distance because he is you know he's he, he's still a black man and the tears in his eyes and and she he, he you know he he says goodbye to them as they go and she says goodbye joe and it's just it's just overwhelmingly uh wrenching and you know i mean especially w- with what's happened in the past few days um for me to to watch that and i hadn't actually made that connection when i when i put in the movie uh, yesterday, uh, you know, I, I mean, I didn't specifically right. think, oh, I'm gotcha. going to be yeah. watching right. this thing about, uh, you know, second racial discrimination and and black people being treated like second class citizens or worse. Uh, and uh, for that to come screaming across the decades uh, from 1936 and, you know, and even dating from an earlier even earlier time is is just extraordinary and it it can uh, i mean it can just break your heart to think that what little progress we've made in some respects well uh another thing too is the fact that uh, we have a lot of talk about love in musicals and um your eyes your lips your hair you uh, beyond compare all that stuff and usually it's physical attraction that um starts love going in shows mm-hmm. but has there ever been anything as potent as the way steve proves his love for julie right um, because he is essentially becoming a black man because all you need to have is one drop of blood in you. And he purposely cuts her so that he can suck her blood and therefore be black as well and black bald as a result of that. So um, that is really quite something. This um, one final thing, this uh, set has a uh, a new featurette on uh, a contemporary, a modern day uh a cultural historian, uh, I, I not write her name down, I'm sorry, uh, examining uh, how race is dealt with in Showboat. And she, she spends a lot of time on that whole section, that whole moment, and uh, how it's so wonderful because it's obvious that these two characters have already discussed this previously. You know, we, we don't need to be told that a, 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 as an audience. And at first, we're like, what is going on? Uh, he says, um, uh, oh, you know, they, they're told that the sheriff is coming to to get her and to uh, and to force her, you know, probably from the showboat because she's uh, half cast and she's not supposed to be performing, uh, especially not with white people. And Steve, um, her her lover, says, um, "That's all right, honey. It won't hurt much." And he pulls out a knife and and. Um, pricks her finger and that's and then sucks it and everyone else is like what is going on but it's so brilliantly written by hammerstein to not tell us until after that and that right after that steve explains what he did and he says everyone standing here right now can swear that i have black blood in me oh it at least means that they can the two of them can still stay together and go off together rather than be separated or thrown in jail which would i also oh i'm sorry i thought you were done no that's it 
Um, what I also should mention is, um, to be fair, I may be giving Oscar Hammerstein too much credit. I've never read the original Edna Ferber novel, Showboat, and all this may very well be in it. Oh, um, true. Yes. And, um, I. Frankly, um, I imagine it is. Um, but uh, one of the most significant books in the history of musical theater is about Showboat. Miles Kruger did one in 1970s five, six, somewhere around there. And it simply was a book about showboat. And we have had a lot of books since that have been on a singular musical. And uh, certainly Lady in the Dark, uh, Bruce McClugh's book, um, many, many books centering on one and one only musical. There's been one on Oliver um, and several, several others. And my point is, I wonder if those would have existed if that showboat book hadn't come out in the 70s. And it's really a terrific book. Mm. Um, Miles Kruger, one of most, our most valuable musical theater historians who supposedly has a household full of items that you would not believe. Um, a lot of um, silent film of... Um, um, shows, you know, uh, like high button shoes and things like that. Um, supposedly they all live there in California. So, um, anyway, um, his book is amazing. And, um, if you can get a copy of that showboat book, it'll tell it'll tell you a lot. Let me ask a question. Um, we've had, uh, discussion this morning about Joe and Queenie and Julie and Steve, but I don't think anybody's mentioned uh, Ravenel and Magnolia. Yeah, I know. Who cares about them? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I, I think that, you know, people that, you know, know Showboat think that the, that's the story is the Magnolia and, and Ravenel, if they know some of the, uh, mm. some of the story. But once you watch Showboat and you study Showboat, you understand that they sing pretty songs, and that's nice, and they're both beautiful, but the real story is the underlying story of, of uh, Queenie and Joe and Julie and Steve. But it, is Ravenel really the—is is there a villain? Is Ravenel a villain? I was thinking uh, when uh, when watching this that he is—I uh, mean, it's so extraordinary that the, the villain— uh, you know, the most flawed character in the piece and the one who causes all the problems is the white guy. Uh -huh. I mean, always. You know, and also... <laughs> Jenna, my, aren't you testy today? <laughs> and watching the news? <laughs> yeah, no, gotcha. I mean, I, mean it's, I think it's obvious why that occurred to me uh, while, while yeah. watching this yesterday. But then also uh, the heart of... Uh, Part of the heart of Showboat is the relationship between Magnolia and Julie and how much they love each other yeah, and, sure. and how Magnolia is, uh, not without even realizing it, she's sort of picking up black culture through Julie. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, oh, yeah. learning that song can't help right. them. At one right. point, she starts dancing and she starts yeah. shuffling, which right. you know, it can look right. extremely uh, questionable to sure. modern-day audiences, sure. but that wasn't the point it was that that she was trying to assimilate that culture and she's not trying to be offensive even though it may look look that way to us now and then she does it later she does a blackface number mm -hmm. uh, it's it's wow. all about that and and this this um current day uh scholar historian uh, again I, i'm sorry i'll have to look up her name uh goes into all of that and examines it very very intelligently and very perceptively uh Many people are are are, are um, 
just, I don't know if reactionary is the right word. People, many people are very negative about uh, some of the racial aspects of Showboat and just can't get beyond it. Uh, but they, they even discuss the use of the, the N word in the original lyrics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's, this is all discussed. Uh, so I, 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 I can't recommend this set highly enough. So Gaylord Ravenel is uh, very often described as a grifter, uh, mm. a schemer, and things like this. Um, it, it's it's interesting how this, uh, as Peter pointed out, nearly a hundred year old property mm. is is pertinent to today. And mm. I could go on and on, but the point is made that this was originally written by Edna Ferber, who mm-hmm. was a, a white woman, and she would have been. Uh, you know, this was in an era when women, when white women had not long before gotten the vote, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, so that was a first step. And then eventually, later, it became black people and black men and black women. But everything has to be fought for. Okay, so uh, that is the 1936 Showboat um, that is now available on Blu ray. I have a link to that in the show notes. It's part of the Criterion collection. Yes. And it's quite inexpensive on Amazon. It's uh, $24 on Amazon. So certainly, uh, if you are a fan of Showboat, you should uh, check that out and and see if. See if you have similar opinions to us and let us know uh, what you think. Uh, we probably won't get to it today, but we were going to talk about uh, we were going to talk about um, showstoppers and also favorite comedy songs. And I was thinking about Queenie's Ballyhoo as being a showstopper in, in Showboat. Do you agree with that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I've, I've seen productions of Showboat where indeed uh, my favorite type of applause where it starts, it abates, and then it gets louder than it mm-hmm. was the first time. Uh, so, in fact, that was in a community produ- theater production in Medford, Massachusetts. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's amazing how much power that song has. Yeah, that's a, it's a really wonderful song. So uh, let's uh, table that discussion I agree. Ab- about uh, favorite comedy songs, showstoppers, favorite off-Broadway shows. These are things we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks. And uh, before we sign off, I want to let everybody know that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Jenna, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as the links to some of the things we've talked about today. So on behalf of Peter and Jenna and Michael, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. But he don't seem to care. He can be happy with just a sip of gin. Why are you all talking about gin? I even loves him when his kisses got gin. 